Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com. Use the code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest grew up in France near Lyon, and inspired by Monica Sellis, learned to play two-fisted off of both wings. She got to seven in the world, and in 2013, won Wimbledon without dropping a set. Marion Bartoli is today's guest. So are you in Ayasio? Is that the capital of Corsica? Are you in Corsica? I'm in Corsica right now in my parents' house. We don't live in Ajaccio. We actually, my parents are in Lille Rousse, which is next to Calvi, which is slightly more higher up north. Ajaccio is in the south. So uh, we're slightly more up north, but same coast as Ajaccio. So left side of the island, the west coast. Where did Napoleon live? Exactly. <laughs> Where did he live? He was born in Ajaccio. So he was in Ajaccio, but you have Napoleon road and streets all over Corsica. Napoleon is present everywhere here. And now I do not sorry. I only spend the summer here in the in Corsica. The rest of the year I'm in Dubai. The young woman you hear most significantly won Wimbledon in two thousand and thirteen without dropping a set. She oh, right. is prominent on television all over Europe, primarily uh, broadcasting it seems 25 weeks a year. She <laughs> coached uh, Yelena Ostapenko at one juncture. She yep. smacked balls off both sides with two hands famously. And that <laughs> is the great champion, Marianne Bartoli. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Craig. Thank you for having me. Now, I, I, I met some course fellows in Aix-en-Provence many years ago. And yeah. Now, do you all speak Italian and French if you're course? Well, it's actually not really Italian. It's language from Corsican, which is a tiny bit of Italian, but it's really its own language. Unfortunately, because I was not born and raised in Corsica, I don't speak it myself. But my nephews, who are now at the Corsican school with my brother, do speak Corsican, which I'm so proud of. But I was not born and raised there. Unfortunately, I didn't pick up that language, but uh, it's great for me just during the summertime to come back to my roots when my grandfather was born and to spend some time in the beautiful island with my parents and my brother. Do you do any tennis in Corsica or you lay off the tennis and you just do beach and the pool and (laughs) and just uh, eat some good food? No, I actually do plenty of tennis. As I'm speaking to you right now, I'm walking to a tennis court. I do coach full-time two young kids in Dubai. They are 12 and 13 years old. And in order to have a continuity in the training, because in Dubai it's 50 degrees Celsius, which is impossible to practice outdoors, they are following me everywhere. So they've been with me in Roland Garros. They've been with me in Wimbledon for their first time ever. And they're with me in Corsica now. So one of them is actually going to play a match in about 20 minutes' time. And uh, I was in the court earlier to warming up and, and practice with the girl who doesn't have a match today. So it's full on job, Craig. It doesn't stop. It never stops. I heard you're a very <laughs> tough coach. We're going to talk about that in a little while. Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. This is where we talk about 
everything in tennis, the business of tennis, there has been talk. Simon Briggs, I believe, announced that there was an investigation going on inside of the WTA regarding problematic coaches. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? Can you can you uh, share your thoughts about what's happening? Well, it has been since a long time um, that the WTA has tried to take actions over sort of over abusing coach in terms of, you know, giving a guidelines to those coaches to understand that there is some lines you just can't cross, especially in the wording you're using and the way you behave with your player. That has been under the radar of the WTA for the past 30 years, I would say. Um, Kathy Martin has been really uh, a massive helper in that department as she has a psychological degree and she's really in charge and that's been for the players there. Yeah, I would say at least for the past 30 years, for players to just go to her and say, well, look, I have an issue now. Can you help me out? Either controlling my coach or getting myself out of a contract in case I have a, you know, a signing contract with a coach. And just um, be there for the young girls because usually it happens to a young player who just doesn't really have any experience of how a coach should behave with them. And therefore, they need a support. And, and the WTA has been playing that role. Yeah, I would say at least for the past 30 years. So it's not something new to me. I've heard about a lot of cases in the past. Uh, but the WTA is absolutely right to take some actions because, you, of course, you have to be tough on the practice. I mean, it's high level of sports, but there are just some lines you can't cross, and especially in the way you interact with your player. Do you think that there is an out-of-control problem with male coaches coaching the women, or do you think it's... I would no. not say that. I would not no. put it to that extreme. Yeah. Um, I would say that because it's, you know, a sport where there is a lot of money on the line and there is a lot of stuff on the line that can create stress in a lot of people. And that's just extra level of stress in some occasions, but more rarely than anything else can cause an abuse. Um, is that often? No. Does it happen? Yes. Sometimes, unfortunately. Um, do we have to tackle it? Absolutely. But I will not say it's something out of control at all. It's very much under control. But, you know, put a lot of human beings trying to chase the same thing with a lot of money on the line. And more, you know, usually than, than not, you will have some issues. But I don't think it's only related to women's sports. I think it would be the case in a lot of fields. Um, it just happens that because we are a sport with so much media attention, the word gets spread a little bit quicker. But I definitely don't think it's something that is you know, out of control and can happen so often. Absolutely not. It's a rare, um, but obviously each case has to be taken very seriously. And and um, and the WTA needs to be proactive, as once again they have been for the past 30 years. Who are you looking forward to seeing compete moving into this hard court season? You were, you know, on the ground, prominent at Wimbledon. Yep. That doesn't always mean much uh, in women's tennis but who did you who impressed you who did you think was in form uh, that that maybe we should keep our eyes on well a few things that would be interesting by first of all I think like everyone to see how Emma Ducano will perform um, I think everyone would be interesting to see now that you know the pressure is really coming high on her shoulders with all those points to defend how she will perform and how she will react to that. 
Um, I'm looking forward to the return of Venus and Serena. They have been announced that we play multiple events this summer. So that is very exciting for the game. Um, I'm looking forward to Naomi Osaka because she always do so well in the uh, on hard courts. <laughs> Hi, sorry, someone talked in French in the middle. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, yeah, so rephrasing my answer, I will. I would very much look forward to see how Emma Raducanu will perform. Do you have any interesting information why she's been muckling through coach after coach after coach? Uh, well, I think it's a difficult situation, you know. Um, she has been winning, being so young, and, and of course, feeling all that pressure on her shoulder from now and then. She's trying to find the best solution for her, and it's not easy. Um, just because, you know, when all of a sudden you're every time you're playing a match, you should win it, and that is not easy to deal with. And so, and all that pressure can, you know, make you feel a bit uncertain. And, and definitely about your your team around you and who should be the best person trying to get you through, um, you know, that phase. And, and that could be multiple person because, you know, as you've been seeing on the WTA as well, a lot of players are using more and more some outside help, uh, like psycho- psychopathists or, you know, people like just can help you out in difficult situation mentally, um, some sort of mental coach or you know, any sort of help that you can get to get you through difficult situations. So I think Emma is just trying to figure it out who she really needs in her corner, how many people um, to just help her to get through that situation. Were you disappointed with Serena's form uh, sort of showing up to Wimbledon seemingly unprepared, unfit, hadn't played any tennis? What was your feeling? No, I was not. I was not disappointed. I was really happy to see her back. Obviously, no one knew in which kind of form she was at. Um, she, she. I think she really wanted to have a go and see if she still likes to compete. And you know, the fact that she has been saying that she wants to enter multiple events um, this summer, with along with Venus, I think the matches they both played at Wimbledon helped them to just find back the desire to compete. And and they. Even though they probably didn't get the result they wanted, they still find that they really like this moment still. And that's what mattered the most. So once you find this back, it's a lot easier to go through a training. It's a lot easier to enter yourself back in tournaments. And I think they needed those sort of, you know, tournaments. And once again, Wimbledon for uh, for Venus, Eastbourne and, and Wimbledon for Serena to just get them on the court, feeling the competition, feeling, you know, happy and 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 bubbly like they were on the court. Of course, they didn't have the outcome they wanted to have, but playing in front of a full crowd, having the stadium cheering on for them was something they were missing. And for me to see them, um, you know, competing, once again, give them that um, that sort of desire to just do more, uh, which is great for women's states. Once again, I mean, at the end of the day, um, the WTA needs stories and needs stars. And the more stories and stars you have, they can be the young ones, they can, like Emma, they can be someone as Serena who is trying to chase history. But the more story you just had, in, um, the more entertaining it is for um, for the viewers and for the fans. And uh, and that's something that we absolutely need for the WTA. My last one would be Naomi Osaka, because for me, when she's on and when she plays her best tennis, she's such a joy to watch. And I know she will pick for the summer hardcore. That's what she likes to play. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to see her perform as well. Why hasn't Ostapenko done better? Um, well, you know, is sort of on and off. Um, she did well on grass. She made it to the final in his board. She did well at Wimbledon as well, making the second week. Um, obviously, that loss against Satina Maria, having match point, was a little bit of tough to swallow. But overall, in globally, she had a strong year. I mean, she won Dubai, beating four Grand Slam winners in a row. Um, that just shows you the talent and, and the level of play she's capable of displaying. It's just for her to do that week in and week out that she struggled a little bit. But when she's on, uh, she can absolutely do a lot of damage. And she would have no points to defend this US Open. As last year, she didn't even play the event. So if she can get some form into the summer, she can be absolutely devastating at the US Open. What was your thoughts about Barty uh, shutting it down this past spring yeah i was i was i was really surprised to be honest with you because i thought ash was you know doing what Iga is doing now which is dominating women's tennis and she's gone and win so many matches in a row and i really thought she had the sort of recipe to just win so many more grand slams and so many more huge events on the wta tour but I guess when you don't have that fire in your belly anymore, and I think for her it happens already after Wimbledon when she won last year because it was such a childhood dream for her when she won it finally. She sort of felt a little bit deflated after that, and I think she tried to push herself because she really wanted to win on her own sword in Australia. But once she got that as well, she just has not anything more to chase for, and and you need those sort of dreams and and things you want to achieve in order to to get you that drive that you need to go daily on the court or daily in the gym and push yourself and what that is you know when it's not there anymore it's very difficult for a player to just go on and sustain the, the amount of sacrifices and amount of travel and amount of everything that you have to do but so I was a tiny bit surprised but when I read her article and when I listened to what she was saying it reminds me myself after winning Wimbledon. You know, you, you just feel empty. You just don't have that fire anymore. Mm-hmm. And when that is not there, you just know that, you know, it's better for you to quit. That's interesting that you saw some of what what transpired. It's, you know, you saw that correlation to yourself, your own story. Now, what is your relationship with French tennis? Are you, do you have a, a strong uh, place in FFT? I mean, I, I'm, I'm in constant relationship, um, especially with the new president, Jean Moreton. Um, I think for me, he's doing such an amazing job in trying to transform um, the National Tennis Center, which is where the top juniors are practicing in order for them to try to become a top 10 players, ATP or WTA, and obviously one day trying to lift the Grand Slam Trophy in single. So it starts from the youth and it starts from, you know, teaching them the right things when they're young so they can carry that on towards their professional career, just like we did Amelie, Morris Mulmery, Pierce, myself, and Nick Noah, and, and then the top male, like Gail Monfils, or with Fitzsonga, Richard Gasquet, and all the great players we have. And right now we are a little bit on a dip, um, and, and GL is putting so much effort in trying to, you know, get, get back on tracks and, and get some top players through again. And that starts once again from the juniors. So, um, I really like that from him. Uh, we're in constant conversation. Then with that translating to me coaching somebody, I have, I'm not sure about it because I live in Dubai full time and it's just, 
you know, I just can't be in Paris, as simple as that. But mm. nonetheless, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to give some help or tips or whatever that might be to young um, French players who want to get some help from me. I'm part of the BNP Paribas Young Talents team for France. So I'm helping Elsa Jacquemot. I'm helping Jean Paris. I'm helping out all these players through, you know, experiences that I had myself being in their shoes at their age and, and just trying to give them the best advice I can possibly give them. Benoit Pair just fell out of the top 100. I know that you've had some social media tete-a-tete with Benoit. Do you care to comment? Well, you know, for me, as I was saying to Benoit when I saw him face-to-face, because, you know, it can escalate very quickly on social media, but when you see someone face-to-face, that's when we have a proper talk because we know each other for so long. And and deep down, Benoit is a good guy. I mean, there is no question about that. And, and we go along well. It's just that, you know, I felt that he was sort of being aggressive to me and I felt I had to respond to that. But... I'm not sure I had the best attitude at that moment, but it just went on. I never felt that way. Um, but bottom line, I want the best for him and I want him to win matches. But, you know, it's a tough life. Once again, I mean, I can't express how difficult it is to be on the road constantly, to have to, you know, play on the ATP tour when the level is so high and, and so tough week in and week out. And all those boys are playing such a strong game now. I mean, every, everyone's physically so strong. You really have to, you know, play hard to win a match and and that is difficult and and I really hope that Benoit can can get back his mojo can find some rhythm again can go and win some matches because once again when he played well he's such an entertainer and, and he really has a lot of talent and can entertain definitely a lot of fans um, and that's what I want for him but right now he's not in that place unfortunately for him I think COVID was a very tough situation for him to handle um, and that didn't help to, you know, to being isolated like that without fans. Do you have some personality that you just offer for them to handle the situation? And, and unfortunately for, for Benoit, that was a little bit the case. But I just hope once again now that the fans are back into the stadiums and he can feel up more vibes, he can find back his rhythm and go on and win matches. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Marianne, where does your tennis begin um, well, it started when I was five years and a half um, in that small village when I was brought up with my parents in the middle of France near to Lyon, um, a very farmer area. So with um, only three tennis courts and um, a football, you say soccer field for, for the boys and just three tennis courts for everyone else. And my parents were playing quite often, especially my dad and my brother. So they used to take me on the court just for me to watch and spend a bit of time with them and play with my toys on the side. And then one day I, I just stood up in the middle of the court and decided to, that I wanted to take the racket of my brother and start to swing a ball. And six months later, I, playing, I was playing my first tournament and I won it. So I won my first tournament. I was six years old and four months. Your father was a medical doctor? Correct. Like the like a, a pediatrician, like he like he sees like the kids in the village and the adults, every or like a doctor of all kinds. Yeah, of do- he's a yeah. GP, exactly like a GP, which you would get in small village, but um, a general practitioner yeah. doctor. Exactly, exactly. And you learned your strokes from your dad. Is that true? No, I learned my strokes from Monica Sedes. Okay. So <laughs> I <laughs> I used to. So I'm a lefty normal life. 
then for my dad, it was too complicated to show me the movement from um, the left side. So he asked me to pick up the racket from the right hand. And that was a bit too complicated for me. So I tried, but my backhand was very natural as I was using a lot of my left hand. But my forehand, one-handed, right-handed was very weak as I had no strength and no coordination into my right uh, arm. Um, and then two years later, in 1992, I saw Monica Celeste play the final of Ron Garros against Steffi Graf. And I saw her playing two-handed on both sides for more than three hours. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And I really liked her attitude as well, the way she was fighting, the way she was never giving up. And I really found a lot of you know, inspiration from her. And the next day, I, I asked my dad if I could get the same racket, the same outfit. And I tried to play the two-handed on the forehand, work out pretty well. Um, never changed from now then. And, and then later on, of course, a lot, lot more years down the line, we become friends with Monica, and um, which is something so special for me because coming from a very small village I'm coming from to have Monica Sliz as a friend is it's something definitely I, I cherish a lot. It was the grip, the same exact grip. I was trying, I was watching you, you know, to get ready for the interview. When you got stretched, you could take your top hand off the racket to get there. And you played righty, but it was, it, it's the same exact grip as Monica, huh? You didn't switch grips. Yeah, that's true. I didn't switch grips. I and, was just saying the right hand in the bottom of the grip and just carry on like that. And when did you start playing with a two-inch longer? You play with a 29-inch racket. Absolutely. Yep. When did that begin? So I was sponsored by Babodat for my younger age and the younger part of my career. And so until 2006, 2005, sorry. And then beginning of 2006, Prince approached me saying, well, we know you're playing to end on both sides. I was top 30 back then. Um, we know how to create a special racket for you, which would be two inches longer, which is the maximum load. We have done it for Michael Chang in the past. Um, they're custom made in New York. And uh, do you want to give it a try? I was like, well, sure. But, you know, I have a contract with Babolat. So I would rather first go to them and see if they can do the same thing. I went to Babolat. They're like, no, it's not really possible for us um, to give you a, um, a two inches longer. We can give you a one inch, which would make a 28 inch, but not a 29. I went back to Prince and said, well, I will have a try and have a go. But if it doesn't fit me, of course, I would stay with Babolat because I was very happy with that brand and they were treating me really well since I was really young. Um, so then I gave it a try and, and it just changed my game so dramatically that I, I went back to Babolat and said, well, you know, I'm really sorry. We, we had such a great relationship. You helped me since I'm 14 years old, but I, I just feel like I can win a lot more matches with that racket. Um, but I just want to leave you with still a great relationship and, and not sort of, you know, putting you on the side and, when I made the switch straight away, I won my first tournament in Auckland in 2006, um, the first week of the year, just before the Australian Open. And I went on and won three tournaments that year on the WTA Tour, which is a high achievement for me. 2007, I made my first final of Wimbledon. When I beat Justin and I, I lost to Venus Williams. Are you the only player to ever win with a 29-inch racket? I am, I believe, yeah. Incredible. Now... I want to back up for a second. So, so you're playing junior tennis in yep. in France, and how did you get very good? How did you get to become elite? I read that you know you didn't 
travel internationally at the beginning that you were just moving around France with your parents, that they were taking you to tournaments around the country. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, you know, my we didn't have enough money to afford to go and play U12, U14 in Tennis Europe um, and just, you know, pay traveling costs. And, and remember back then, we were in the early 2000s. Back end of the 90s, early 2000s, it was costing a lot of money to buy a flight ticket. And, and I just couldn't, aff- my parents just couldn't afford to fly me to Germany, Austria, Spain, Italy, whatever, to play just U14 events. So the French Federation has such a great system, which is what we call an open tournament, which is open to anyone, goes by ranking. And depending on your ranking, that the first round you will play against someone lower rank than you. And then second round on, you would play always someone higher rank than you until either you lost or you're winning the tournament. And um, you get a small prize money out of that. So for me, it was all beneficial because I used, I mean, I learned to play against so many different styles. I could play against someone who was just chipping, charging, coming to the net. And I could play against someone who was just mooning, bullying the ball. And I can play against, you know, a young player than me that's just trying to play flat and very aggressive. And I used to play against so many different age group and type of style that it gave me a sort of broader um, approach to my game and adaptation as well. And then on top of which, I was obviously increasing my ranking to then becoming number one in France on my category. And that's when the French Federation decided that I should join the national squad and start to travel for France national team. How old were you? I was 15. So at 15, you were identified by the FFT. Correct. But not before, which is quite rare. Because usually the best kids are starting to play U12 national competition, U14 national European competition, and then they carry on and go and play U16, U18. I only play U16, U18. And you won uh, Junior US Open. And, and was that the impetus for you turning pro? Uh, a little bit before that. So I... I won the French Championship on my category, and then I won the French Championship adult, which is anyone's, any game, um, unless you're a pro player, which is you play WTA, but everyone else can play. You won the Open Amateur, Open Amateur National Championship. (laughs) Amazing. Correct. uh, Before my 16 years old birthday. So I was 15 and some months and then I went on to the U.S. I won the Orange Bowl under 16. And then I won 35 matches in a row in the junior tour. Um, so, so I knew when I made that sort of all back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back results that, you know, I had, I had the potential to make it as a pro. Did you beat any special names that we would be impressed with? Well, I beat uh, Maria Sharapova, I beat Yelena Yankovic, I beat Svetlana Kuznetsova, I beat Vera Zvonareva. We just all played the same junior year. All in juniors. Was, all in juniors. That was <laughs> our top 10 junior of that year. I the strongest top 10 ever, I think, who played the juniors that same year. Amazing. We all, yeah, we all went on to either be number one in the world and grand slam champions or grand slam champions or number one in the world. It was just ridiculous how strong it was. Wow. And... And and who got you to play so so tight to the baseline? 
where did you decide not to give yourself or not really to give the opponent any time? Well, you know, my dad was sort of a visionary, uh, a little bit like Richard Williams, really, in, in what should be the tennis moving forward in the next 20 years. And my dad believed that it was stepping inside the court, swing volley, double-handed, and hitting hard and taking the ball early. It was not being three meters behind the baseline and retrieving and, and playing normal one-handed body. So that was sort of my dad's vision. And then, and then um, growing up in that place in France, we didn't have a proper indoor court. So I had a sort of indoor place with a lot of different sports lines drawing to on the ground and not even a, a proper tennis surface. It was tarmac. So it was like the road surface. And I had just had no backspace whatsoever. So if I was just standing on the baseline of the tennis court, I was very close to touch the wall with my rackets. So I was barely, I could barely just serve. My racket was already about to touch the wall. So then I, I just couldn't go backwards because otherwise I would just couldn't swing the ball. Oh, and you hit the so ball just, so hard. So I just taking it early and hitting flat. <laughs> taking it early and hitting hitting lasers. Yeah, and, I'll try. <laughs> and and you and you know I I forgot how good you were. I was watching. I was like, wow. I was like, I can't. I I forgot how good she was. And you were fitter than I remember you. Your fitness was incredible. You were able to go side to side incredibly well, and you look less fit than you were. Yeah, well, you know, I always had a lot of comments on my outside appearance or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I, I always believed that because I was still headed on both sides and because I had to play inside the court, my footwork has to be so strong and so fast because otherwise I just couldn't get... Um, set to the ball early enough to compete against the girl I wanted to compete against, which was, you know, probably the top players that I ever played the game. So I really had to work so hard on my fitness that I, I took it quite badly when people were saying, oh, but yeah, she's not fit enough. I was like, you can't even imagine how much I'm working on my fitness level. I mean, you guys are commenting stuff that you don't even know about. Um, but at the end of the day, my results speak for myself. And when I won my grand slam, I was like, yeah, that's your answer to your, all your comments for so long. But not just that, but I mean, all you have to do is the, 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 the video doesn't lie either. Your, your movement yeah. and how you were able to crack so hard is, is very interesting to me. I was fascinated to sort of rewatch you playing. I really enjoyed that. Your father was omnipresent on tour i even remember seeing you you never see players watching night matches you never see players uh sticking around the courts i feel like you and your father were constantly at the courts was it too much or was it was it was it or or do you look at those moments fondly no i look at those moments with so much um pride and enjoyment because it was just what it was required to do in order for me to achieve what I wanted to achieve. I mean, remember, I used to compete against Justin Enna, Tim Fashers, Venice and Serena Derbez, Amelia Morismo, Mary Pierce, Jennifer Capriati, Lindsay Davenport, Maria Sharapova, all the other Russian players. I mean, the competition was just so fierce that if I didn't spend that much time and that much hours in the gym, on the court, studying the game, studying the game of my opponents, trying to improve my own game, 
I would have never get a chance to beat all those major champions. It would have just not be possible. Um, and I never wanted to be average. Average was not interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to Petra Gvitova the other day at Wimbledon in the members' locker room, and she was like, yeah, you know, when I had my hand surgery after the attack she suffered from, for me, it was only to be back at the top or nothing. She would not like to hang around 50, 60, 100 in the world. You know, when you reach the top, you just you just don't want to to do anything else and just stay for the top level and the top trophies. And I always wanted that. So I knew because I didn't have the same talents, physical abilities and everything else my peers used to have. I just had to work double hard, you know, just to, to make it up for lack of talent or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I like Rafael Nadal quotes, which is the most talented player is the one who wants, who wins. And I strongly believe in that. So if I was able to win matches and, and against the top players of this planet, that means, you know, I had a bit of talent somewhere. Was the tennis better 15 years ago, 10 years ago? Um, it was different. Um, I think we all agreed when, when I talked to, let's say, Martina Hingis, Conchita Martinez, Mary Pierce, we see each other at Grand Slam and we're sort of trying to, you know, compare our analysis we all come out to the same point which is I think we used to be slightly more consistent which means we could perform the same level for week in and week out season after season more consistency Um, yeah in level and I think yeah and I think right now the girls can definitely when they reach their peak can play at a very high level absolutely there is no doubt about that but it's just a little bit tougher for them to sustain that level of consistency and that's why you have those switching rankings and those moving rankings and then those top 10 sometimes losing early in tournaments and then having new players are coming through because it seems that it's a little bit tougher for them those days um, to just keep that consistency of strong level. I mean, back then when you look at the draws and you can take the, you know, from 2000 to 2010, you can take all the Grand Slams draws. You were fairly finding the same names from the quarterfinal onwards. You might have one exception or one player that were coming through, but not not more than one, maximum two. If you look at the, the slams right now, out of eight players, you have maybe two that you would expect and six that are, or five that are unexpected. And, and that's where sometimes the fans are a little bit confused into why it's happening that way. When do you think you played your best tennis? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, Hold on, but why why is it tough? Because I was looking back at some of the matches, um, you know, the other day, because by the kids I'm coaching were like, oh, Coach Marion, how we used to play? Can we watch some matches of you before? And I pull out a few matches, like the one when I beat Justin in Wimbledon, the one when I beat Venus in the final of Stanford, the ones when I beat Vika in uh, in Miami, and I was like, Jesus, this was such a strong level. Um, but of course, everyone remembers when I won Wimbledon. But I, if I have to pick five matches that I played at my best, it would be five matches from different years. I just think globally, the strongest year I had as consistent level from the first week to the last was 2011. Um, that's the year I finished number one in the ACs records. Sent, uh, serving 470 aces. Um, my winning ratio was like, I think, 75 to 80%. It was just so strong. And I just had so many wins and, and not a lot of losses. 
Um, so I would say globally that would be there. If I had to pick and choose two matches, of course, that stands out there from different years, but as a stronger year, 2011. Why was everything clicking so nicely for you that year? Well, I did a very strong off season. Uh, I got really fit. I was really, really fit. And, and then everything started to click, um, you know, already in Indian Wells when I made the final, I lost to Caroline Vosniaki, but I just played a strong event. I beat Kim, Kim Kleisters there, made it to the final. Um, then I went on and played a strong Miami as well. Um, then I moved on to the clay and started to make the semifinal around Garros, which was my best achievement by far. Then I went on to win Eastbourne, beating Petra Gvitova in the final, Sam Stoller in the semis, who won the US Open that year. Petra won Wimbledon that year. I mean, I just had so many strong results back to back that I made the quarterfinal in Wimbledon, beating Serena on the on the route. Um, I, I just felt so strong physically, so fit, so light on my feet. Uh, and my serve was just working. Um, you know, I, I could just serve aces after aces. And in my game, I always knew I could broke my opponents. But to hold my serve constantly against those top players was, was difficult. And obviously serving that hard and giving me that cushion really helped me to, to just compile the great results week after week. Did you enjoy being a pro tennis player? Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved every second of it. And that's why I'm so passionate and, you know, really want those kids who have the same dreams as I used to have when they were their age and walking in their shoes. I really want to help them and, and give them that passion for the game because I just love tennis so much. You know, right now I'm in a small club in Corsica watching amateurs playing and I, I enjoy it as much as, you know, going into a professional event and watching professional players. I just love tennis so much. It's really into my blood. I love that. Now, do you coach differently from your father? Uh, no. <laughs> the exact same way. <laughs> like father, like daughter. You've, you've adopted your father's blueprint. Yeah, I did, but it's normal. You know, I, I've been using those techniques myself while playing, and I know how efficient they are. Um, obviously, they don't play two-handed on both sides, so they play a normal one-handed forehand. But the rest, which is a discipline... Um, you know, being focused every time you step on that court, playing the first ball to the last at 100%, all of that is something you have to teach them because it's obviously not natural to many. Um, but, I mean, I, I love those kids so much. They're great kids. They're well-raised, well well-behaved. Um, I definitely think they can, both of them make it. And, um, and I love this adventure. If you think they could become pro tennis players, we want to hear their names. Yeah, so the girl is 13 years old. Her name is Palavi, P-A-L-L-A-V-I. Palavi. Um, that's her first name, Palavi. Last name is Patel, P-A-T-E-L. Palavi Patel. Yeah, and the boy's name, so he's 12 years old. He's one year younger. He's the same last name, and the first name is Hirsch, H-U-R-S-H. And they're good players. They're great players. They have... Um, extremely good motivations. They have a great setup in Dubai when we can practice as much as we want. Um, they're highly motivated. They're even more motivated when they saw up close a champion in Roland Garros in Wimbledon. And that was, that was definitely my goal when I took them there to give them stars in their eyes and, and, and to see the drive, that extra drive that they got um, out of those few weeks with me on those Grand Slam was definitely very 
very special and I really enjoy to, to see that extra drive there carry on from those experiences. And um, yeah, I mean, I strongly believe they can absolutely make it because once they're great players, uh, they have good talents, they're strong physically, they have the will and desire and they have the setup. So there is no reason for them that they shouldn't make it. What was the impetus for Amelie Moresmo being with you 2013 Wimbledon and not your father? There had been a split. Yeah, my father was there for the final, but just as a father, not as a coach. Amelie was there, the Fed Cup captain, sort of overlooking me. And we had such a great relationship as in dealing with the mental part of facing pressure, and, and especially in the later stage of her Grand Slam. And that's very much what she gave me during those two weeks, which is this reinsurance look. Um, we talked a lot outside of the courts, preparing the tactical plan against the next player. Um, she didn't have that much input into my technique because, um, you know, that was done by my father for so many years. But it was more about dealing with the magnitude of playing a semifinal for Grand Slam or final for Grand Slam, um, how to start the match, how to behave, what to think, what should be the tactical plan against that specific opponent. And um, and it worked out pretty well, <laughs> to say the least. You know, obviously, we've seen over the years problems with fathers as coaches. Um, what is your opinion of fathers as coaches? Well, you know what? It's very much depending on the situation. Um, as, I don't think you can make a generality. I think it's it's very much depending on you know, the knowledge, the relationship, the story, the background, um, and everything that is involved into a relationship, really. Um, but I don't think there is more abuse if it's a father or a mother coaching her daughter or um, her son versus an outside coach I can still abuse coaching a girl that is not a relative. So... Once again, I think it's very much depending on a lot of external things and, and definitely stress, competition and money can, you know, create um, extra stress and, and therefore bad behaviors. But I don't believe it's only related to or associated rather to parents. Um, I think it can happen in any situation and definitely with an outside coach as well. When during those two weeks of the fortnight, did you think you could win the tournament? Um, when I beat Sloan Stevens in, in the, the quarters, quarters, in the quarters, yeah. then then I look at my draw and Petra Kvitova was playing, and she lost to Kirsten Flipkens, and I was like, I don't know, it I just felt like it was my year. Um, I had the experience. I had, I had. Um, the knowledge of, of playing against those players. I know how to play on grass. Um, I just felt everything was starting to click and everything was starting to go my way. And, and it's something that is very subjective, obviously, but you can sort of sometimes feel that, you know, when it should rain and then it doesn't rain and then you're able to finish your match when your opponent can't finish or your next opponent can't finish their match and therefore you have a full day off and your opponent doesn't. You just start to feel those few things. Um, and it definitely felt that way that year. And uh, and then I played Kirsten and went on to play really well. Um, 
make it to the final and Agnieszka Radwanska, which was my worst <laughs> nightmare right. as I couldn't beat her, ended up losing that match. And I was like, okay, this is my time now. There is just <laughs> no way I'm going to lose this Wimbledon. <laughs> Once you saw Radwanska out of the draw, you, read, you, you, you were ready to uh, sink your teeth in there, get that trophy. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so is it true... I have it on notice that the first person that was aware of your retirement as you blew off the court in Cincinnati after losing to Simona Halep was Andrea Petkovic that you said to her, I'm done. I'm finished. And, and then, and then you, then you literally walked right into the press conference and announced your retirement. Um, I remember seeing Andrea. I don't know in which um, sort of <laughs> first I say to her or if I call my dad first. I remember calling my dad and telling him. Uh, but I don't know. In, in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know in which order I saw Andrea first or calling my dad first. But I definitely Andrea was there. Uh, but yeah, She told me I mean, a funny story. Again. I'm sorry. She told me a funny story on my show that she just thought you were upset. <laughs> not that you were actually yeah. going to finish. Yeah, I was. I I always took pretty dramatic decisions, but no, it just. I mean, I just couldn't swing the ball after forty five minutes. That was as simple as this. My shoulder just couldn't make it anymore, and I think my brain just sort of blocked that for all twenty thirteen because I really wanted my grandson so badly that the adrenaline and the desire was blocking the pain. But when that was gone. I just couldn't lift my arm after 45 minutes. It was impossible for me to serve anymore. And you just can't win matches. It just, you just can't win matches in 45 minutes. You know, so I, I played Simona for my last match. I won the first set and after the first set, I just couldn't serve anymore. So you don't really enjoy being on the court anymore because you just feel, well, you know, winning or losing is not the point. It's just you want to perform at your best. You just want to, you don't want to feel restricted, you know? And I definitely feel feel like I just couldn't serve anymore. So I didn't lose the match on my terms. And that was not something I could take anymore. I mean, what a career. You, uh, it sounds like the treads on the tire were finally uh, flattened. There was no more tread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you, you retire. You finish up at Cincinnati literally weeks after you won Wimbledon. And the next part of your story became quite sad. You had a uh, eating disorder. You you had anorexia nervosa, and you essentially emaciated yourself. And what was the impetus for that? And and how did you come through that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough moment of my life. Um, it would always be part of me, but I'm glad I went over it, and now. You know, I'm such an happy wife, an happy mother, with a lovely husband and lovely daughter, and feeling fulfilled with my personal life. But I went through a difficult um, relationship, and and with just someone that just constantly was putting me down and constantly was telling me that everything I was doing was so bad and and I was not worthing much, and um and every other woman was so much more beautiful than me and so much leaner and taller. And even though I was very strong and obviously coming out from my tennis career, feeling, um, you know, at my highest, um, day by day, it's just so cynical that it starts to get into your skin. And I was like, well, you know what? 
you want me to get leaner, I'm going to put myself in a stronger diet. And obviously I'm so strong mentally that I, I went through it. And then once you start there, you're so used to not eating anymore that you become anorexic because you refuse to eat then. And it was just a vicious circle that was so hard to break. But for me, sports saved me as I was um, at Wimbledon in 2016 and, and the championship decided that it, for my own health and my own sake, it was better if I was not taking part of the Legends events. And I was just a wake-up call because you can take anything out of me, but just not tennis. And that's that was the sort of turning point when I decided to fight back and and do not let myself uh, keep on going down that path and, and just finding the strength to, to overcome this issue, which is not easy to overcome by any means. That's am- so, so Wimbledon made you <laughs> and yeah. Wimbledon saved you. Exactly. Yeah. It's that, that relationship that you described is exactly right. He made me and it saved me. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I say it and you just say what comes in your mind. Are you ready? Yep. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. That's obvious. <laughs> Where do you keep the member pin for the Wimbledon pin? Where do you keep that membership pin? In my handbag always. The membership pin to the All England Club, you keep it in your handbag always. Correct. Correct. Uh, I, I always that. have it with, with me. Where is the trophy? <laughs> In the safe in Dubai in a bank. In the safe. You don't you don't yeah. show it. No, it's too expensive to show it. <laughs> I'm too scared that someone can you know can stole it out of me. No, it's it's in the safe. Once in a while I go there and I polish it and I make sure it's in good shape. But uh no, it, it's I would feel too scary to have it in my house all the time. Well, I don't have advice for my guests normally, but I advise you figure out a way to put that out. I think you should, you, you, everyone <laughs> should see it all the time. Uh, your favorite city? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I love New York, New York City. The best tournament for players? Stuttgart. Why? Because of the Porsche driving. <laughs> you get a Porsche to drive around Stuttgart. Yes. The best tournament for the fans? Uh, the Australian Open. The best or endorsement deal you ever did? Mm, best endorsement deal I ever did. Prince. Prince. Yeah. I mean, making the 29-inch racket. Now, did you use a Yonex for a second? When I was young, yes. When I was younger, I used to play with Yonex because Monica was playing with Yonex. I see. Um, big entourage or lean and mean? I like both. Uh, but I was lean and mean for so long. But I like big entourage as well. So we go with big entourage. Player box etiquette. How should people behave in the box? Um, respectful to both players. What is your opinion of the prevalence now of gambling in tennis? Well, people gamble on anything. Uh, so, I mean, that's not something you can stop. Obviously, um, you have to put a strong action into the players or anyone which is the, within the ecosystem of tennis to gamble. But outside, you would never stop people from gamble because you can't stop the adrenaline of playing. Um, so that's just something tennis should be aware of. But 
I don't think you can stop it. Your favorite player now? Oh my god, uh, it's so hard because I used to play against all of them, male or female, or only female. It's the it's the ten ball scramble. You can say everything you want, anything or everything. It's got to be fast. Okay, um, Novak Djokovic. And what about for a woman player? Is there a woman player that you just Ser- love to watch? Serena all day. You love Serena Williams. Yeah, I just love her so much. Did you have such any inspiration? Such an inspiration to you. Absolutely. Why? I think to a lot of women, because she's just so strong, and she go on with her business, and she's just you know do her thing without looking back or living with any regrets. Um, I just like this attitude. I know you're a fashionista. Is there a favorite designer right now for you? Oh my God! Don't get me into fashion. <laughs> well, I love to wear all my Marina Rinaldi dresses, um, so that's what I do. All all those grand slams when I step on the sports, and I always receive nice compliments. And then my Louboutin shoes, obviously. You like the you like the red bottoms. I do. And that's Marina Rinaldi is the brand is the is the is the yeah. designer you wear. Exactly. For our listeners, if you ever see Marianne Bartoli floating around the tennis, she always looks like a million bucks. That is a fact. (laughs) Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. If you could be the queen of tennis for a day and make a change in the sport with a swing of the racket, what would it be? It's a tough one. Um, I would follow Billie Jean King and I would want equality. So we want equality across the board and have the same price money for female and male players. Are you concerned with the health of the WTA? I'm not because we have um, such strong tor- stories. We have Ol Jaber, you know, such being a trailblazer in her region um, for Arab women, for Arab young girls to dream one day to walk in her footsteps and become tennis stars as well. We have Naomi Osaka um, being the, the, you know, such as having a, such a strong impact in the U.S. and Japan and all around the world. We have Serena still playing. Um, we have Emma Raducanu. We get the whole U.K. on their feet. Um, you know, you just have so many strong stories and, and incredible stars that can really move millions of people and millions of fans um, that I'm not worried about the WTA, no. It's a great product. It remains to be a great product. I just hope that, you know, the, like you said, sometimes that did you see the disparity in prize money at places like the Italian Open and it seems concerning. Exactly. Exactly. Marianne, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, Sometimes technology is so incredible that we could be talking. I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles, and you're in a tennis club in Corsica. This was just a fantastic <laughs> chat. Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate it as well. Marianne Bartoli, enjoy the rest of your summer in Corsica. When do we see you next? Do you come to the U.S. Open or before the U.S. Open? I might come to the second week of the U.S. Open. Um, I will be in, the, in tournaments with my kids all summer long. And then we move back to Dubai um, around the 15th of September. Ça c'est bon. Marianne Bartoli, you are (laughs) released.
Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye, Craig. Huge thank you to Marion Bartoli. Thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com. Use my code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Thank you to Martin Mulligan of Fila for coordinating this interview. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.